0: Welcome to another episode of Criterion on the Couch, a podcast from two amateur film buffs as they make their way through the vast Criterion collection one title at a time, all from the comfort of the couch. I'm Adam Yerick along with
1: Jim Massessa,
0: and today's episode features the Fritz Lang film M. Jim's going to take us through the official Criterion summary and specs.
1: A simple, haunting musical phrase, whistled off screen, tells us that a young girl will be killed. Who is the murderer? pleads a nearby placard as serial killer Hans Becker, Peter Lorre, closes in on little Elsie Beckman. In his harrowing masterwork M, Fritz Lang merges trenchant social commentary with chilling suspense, creating a panorama of private madness and public hysteria that to this day remains the blueprint for the psychological thriller. This movie came out in 1931, it's 110 minutes long, The picture is black and white with a 1.19 to 1 aspect ratio. The audio is in German with new and improved English subtitles. And if you're following along at home, this is Criterion number 30.
0: So this is uh, one of my favorite films and definitely one of the movies, if not the movie that got me into the Criterion collection. Originally, I uh, I saw this film for the first time in a film class. It was like an intro to film class, and um, I really liked it. And then I think I wrote a paper about it. I remember having to get it from the library again, and I remember grabbing the DVD version of it from the school's library, and it was the Criterion Collection. And then I was like, oh, what's the Criterion Collection? Wow. And then, you know, here we are today, all those years later. So
1: Yeah, you've been telling me about this movie since we started doing the <laughs> podcast. Almost every episode, you'd say, oh, we should do M next time. And I kept putting it off.
0: I mean, it's from 1931. It's in German. If you're not someone who watches has watched a lot of old movies, I think sometimes those are really hard to get into. I think we kind of talked about that a little bit with The Man Who Knew Too Much, mm-hmm. which also starred uh, Peter Lorre.
1: And uh, was covered in Criterion on the Couch, episode number five. Go back and give that a listen.
0: So I think that can definitely contribute to being like, eh, I don't know, was this movie really good? But I think it is. I think if you put it in context of what was happening in film in terms of technology. I mean, we were only a few years into, you know, talkies. And a lot of those films had a lot of dialogue in them at the time. So a lot of what Fritz Lang did in this film were some firsts, but also kind of setting the stage for how a lot of thrillers and murder mystery type movies were made going forward. This is probably the fifth or sixth time I've watched this movie to watch it again for for this. So obviously, first time you watched it. What were your thoughts?
1: So I watched it for the first time a few weeks ago. And then today I rewatched with the... It's not the director's commentary. It's the extra commentary by two German film scholars, Anton Kays and Eric Rentschler. Uh, It was pretty interesting, actually. I mean, when I listen to commentary like that or watch people review books or movies, sometimes I really wonder if what they're saying about a piece of art is really what the original writer or director had in mind, or if, you know, they're putting what they see the movie is about. But either way, I feel like that commentary really opened up a lot of what was going on in the story. They do talk about, like you were saying, the sound, a lot of the scene setup. And different things like the, with the cinematography that were just new at the time that nowadays you're like, yeah, that's so commonplace. It's it's not as impressive. But knowing that this was the first time a lot of this stuff was done, it does make it a little more impressive. But they also talk about the story and the characters itself and how that was a reflection of what was going on at the time, mm-hmm. especially the main character, Peter Lorre, he's playing Hans Beckert. Mm-hmm. And that is based on a real-life killer, Peter Curtin. Sometimes he was called the Dusseldorf Monster or the Vampire of Dusseldorf. He killed at least nine people, attempted to murder another 31 who he did attack. In the show notes, there'll be a link to the Wikipedia page. I was reading through it and it's, woof. it is rough to read. But that was over a period of about 16 years where this killer was just on the loose. And that's really the basis of this story. I think knowing that kind of makes it a little more eerie. I think maybe at the time it might have seemed more scary than it does nowadays. Because to me, when I watched this for the first time, it seemed almost a little a little jokey at some points. I don't think that was the intention, but I feel like horror and scary movies, thriller movies nowadays are so intense that watching something that might have been an original in that genre makes it seem not quite Not quite as effective as it it might appear nowadays.
0: Yeah, I mean, it definitely has moments of comedic relief throughout the film. I think you make a good point there that I think that being almost an original in a genre kind of changes everything. Some thrillers do have moments of comedic relief. It's just to like what extent, what level of relief do they have them? And there were definitely, I mean, several serial killers that were active for years in Germany, including The Butcher of Hanover. There was definitely that, and I know that Fritz Lang kind of made this film. It was almost like a warning to mothers to watch their children. But I think he had read like a couple accounts of the killer that you mentioned and, and some others, and that's kind of what uh, spurned him to do this story. Even in the time that it's being made, is really interesting because it's like right as the Nazis started to gain power in Germany. And I know that in 1934, this film was banned by the Nazis too, So and, and it really didn't even see the light of day until the 60s. And then the Criterion version is the best version of this film because it had been cut up into different lengths. It was cut down into like an 80-minute version with like different aspect ratio and uh, different audio dubbed over in different languages a couple times, all of which was done without Fritz Lang's approval or or anything. At least this version is the most complete version. And I think from looking at it, I mean, it's a movie from 1931, but it, it holds up pretty well in terms of, you know, cinematography and the print uh, quality and the audio too. I think that's kind of what sets it apart. I think what always made me like this movie is knowing that this was Fritz Lang's first film using sound Mm -hmm. and seeing like a master director not just go over the top with a sound, but actually integrate sound as a a main plot point and as the device that kind of moves the film along and ultimately catches the killer. I think that's really cool in the fact that you have A blind man, you know, is the one who hears the the killer with his whistle that he's constantly whistling and that that's what leads them to catch the killer.
1: And you know that he's blind because Because he has a a a a... sign
0: around his neck. He
1: (laughs) He has a sign on his neck that says blind.
0: I honestly, I believe that was fairly common at the time, though, um, especially for people with different disabilities. It's funny. I was actually watching um, the movie Dunkirk again um, the other day. And there's a scene where a man who you don't at the time know is blind, but he's he's not making eye contact with the soldiers and he's handing out blankets. And one of the soldiers is like, oh, that guy couldn't even look us in the eye. And it was like, well, yeah, he was blind, but you didn't really know that at the
1: time. Yeah, I didn't know if that was something of that time period or if it was kind of a tie into the movie where later on the murderer kind of has a, a symbol on him indicating what he is, just like the blind man has a sign.
0: I don't think it was like an heavy-handed thing that was done for the film. I think probably at that time, like it it was probably commonplace for someone like that to wear a sign to let people know that he was blind. So you didn't really give your, your thoughts on the film.
1: I would say the first time I watched it, I thought it was okay, but I felt a little let down by the ending. And then on the rewatch, I kind of appreciated it a little more getting into what the intent was behind the movie. The first time I was watching it, I was trying to pay attention to a lot of the sound and then I was reading the subtitles. So it was hard to pay attention to a lot of what was going on in the picture. But on the rewatch, I didn't have the subtitles on. I just listened to that commentary audio and really watched. Mm -hmm. And I think that's when I I really appreciated it more. I feel like you know a little more about Fritz Lang. Do you want to talk about him as far as directing goes and and maybe what else he's done that people might know him from?
0: Well, his other big movie is Metropolis. I mean, Mm -hmm. M is probably his most significant film that he's done. I'm not like a huge student of Fritz Lang. You know, he's one of the bigger directors that to come out of Germany. But M really is probably his biggest film. I think more people know Metropolis and have seen that because it's a famous silent film. Um, and for some of the way that it represents technology and some of the techniques that were used in shooting that. I've mentioned to people, Fritz Lang, and talked about this movie before, and, and when I say Metropolis, then they kind of like, oh yeah, maybe they saw, saw that in a film class or something like that, or they've seen it, you know, clips from it.
1: Metropolis is definitely the one I have heard of before. I was looking through his other uh, movies, and some of the titles sounded familiar. Metropolis is the only movie I attempted to watch But I think the version I was watching was three hours long, and I've just i tried. I just couldn't do it. I have a 2003 version of Metropolis. Uh, It was an animated version put out by a Japanese animator, Uh, and it did the same thing where it did a lot of experimenting with um, new technologies when that film came out. But Fritz Lang, uh, other than Metropolis and M... Yeah, I mean,
0: it's not like he has a breadth of work like Alfred Hitchcock. Right. But I think for the few films that he has done, he's considered, you know, a master at his craft. I mean, this movie being that in and of itself, from a cinematography standpoint, I think it's hard to really get into like the acting performances. I think we talked a little bit about this when we did The Man Who Knew Too Much, but judging a 1930s acting performance based on the two of us who have mainly gotten our stuff from movies made in, you know, like the 80s through the 2000s, where acting is a little bit different. I think it's up to peg that. But even, like, you you look at, um, like, Peter Lorre's, the monologue that he does at the end of the film when he's kind of, like, talking about why he kills people and the feelings he gets from it. It's really not, like, it's not too over the top. Like, I mean, it definitely is in comparison to today's stuff, like, a little bit. It seems, like, overacting, but that's where you kind of get this interesting meld of a lot of actors who this might have been one of their first audio films. Mm Mm-hmm. So, the facial expressions, like, I think that's the other thing that he's doing here, too, is there's still a little bit of the the holdover from silent films where close up facial expressions, body language, they're still really, really important to be able to kind of convey the story. I think you see that a lot with like the weird, long silent takes that he has of people like sitting at a table and they like lean in and stare at the camera. Yeah. That stuff today seems like super awkward, but I imagine in a silent film, like, they needed to have that kind of expression and acting to be able to convey the story as it goes along. I think that adds that, like, comedic relief where it's not necessarily supposed to be funny. I'm thinking of the scene where the, towards the beginning of the film, when there's the guy sitting around the table and they're, like, arguing over, like, you're the killer or, no, you're the killer.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: And there was some, like, really funny facial expressions and actions. At the time, like, you wouldn't have laughed at those. They weren't meant to be funny. They were just considered natural reactions.
1: Peter Lorre's monologue towards the end Taking out of context it might seem like overacting, but I would say in the scene it was in and in this film it's not really overacting. It's just the style of this movie. It almost seems like you're watching a play. Yeah. Peter Laurie's face, he's making really wide eyes and big mouth. He does a lot of like hand grabbing into the air. Something you would you would expect in like a Shakespearean play or something like that. Where to your point, you might not be able to get the message from the sound. And since this was new, they might have still been carrying over some of that acting from the silent films. I don't know why I didn't think this while I was watching, that the talking itself is new. Yeah. I was focused on the background sounds and the very little music that there is. But yeah, I guess the talking itself is new. And that's really well done. Again, it's in German. So I'm reading the subtitles and, and really not listening to their voices as much. But there was a lot of back and forth conversations between a few people that really just served to tell the audience what's going on. I'm thinking of, I think the police commissioner and I don't know what this other guy was. They called him Mr. Secretary. I don't know what he... Yeah. They talk back and forth kind of in the beginning, which really lets us know as the audience what's happening with the police investigation. Yeah. So he's saying, you know, how overworked the police are and the clues they've been following and this. And they both know this. They're talking back and forth so we know. Yeah. And I feel like that's new. They weren't able to do that in movies before, but that can move the plot along without having to show them doing all this investigation.
0: Silent films weren't silent. I mean, they always had a musical track. Sometimes they would have sound effects and things like that to go along with them. So it's really like that's the idea. That's where that phrase like talkies comes from because it was finally the first time in which you could hear the actors talking. Everything you said totally makes sense. In fact, this film was really the first to use that voiceover or that narration aspect where the scene you're talking about, while that's happening, you're also seeing shots of the policeman. Right. You're talking about them being overworked, you're seeing them be tired and kind of walk into the, you know, the break room or whatever, or walk out on the beat and, and they're tired. It's kind of showing them everything they're doing. And that happens a lot throughout the film. I think another good scene is when they talk about the unreliable eyewitnesses and it cuts to a scene that was happening earlier of two men giving completely contradictory eyewitness accounts, and then it cuts back to the phone conversation. Right. That type of stuff, that's also, you know, super new and was never really done before in film, and and this was the first one to really do it.
1: You know, I guess that all goes back to Fritz Lang as, well, he wrote and directed this, I believe. Mm -hmm. You know, that's partially the writing, but then also the directing of putting that audio on top of those scenes. I also liked not so much with the audio, but there was a scene a little further on when I'm just going to refer to them as the criminals. (laughs) They weren't really a mob, but they were organized. It was like an organization of criminals an underground. Yeah. But it cuts back and forth between the police and the criminals that are both having very similar um, meetings and conversations about the murderer. And the audio is very similar. What they're both saying. But just the way the scene is shot and cut back and forth, they're both sitting around similar tables, the way they're situated, they're both smoking, the way the light is. Sometimes the movement of one character in the criminal section matches right up with the movement of a police officer when they cut to the police station. It's really great for a movie at that time, I think, but it really shows how both of these groups are being forced into the exact same situation and behavior mm-hmm. by the situation that's been created by this murderer.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the things I also like about this film. The way I've always kind of summarized it to people, and it's really just—it's a movie about a child murderer who uh, is causing so much chaos, and the police are all over the place looking for him. They keep catching all these petty thieves, so these petty thieves band together to try to catch the murderer, so they can go back to being petty thieves and pickpockets and robbers and whatever. Yeah, they do want to catch this guy because he's obviously murdering these children, but at the same time, like what really drives them to do it is the fact that they keep getting arrested and they're sick of the cops being all over the
1: place. Right. There's a scene, I guess, a little before that where the police, it's kind of a good shot. They show the police in a a large line just all walking down the road. So they're like kind of sweeping the street, literally. And then they bust a underground like hideout where there's you know, probably like 50 or so people just hanging out, almost like a speakeasy or something like that. But it's where all the, the underground criminals hang out. And so they keep getting arrested, to your point, because the police, I think they know they're not going to find the murderer hanging out in this den with all these popular criminals, but they have to make a show of it. Mm-hmm. In the beginning of the movie, there's several different scenes where it shows how tense the town is where the slightest wrong conversation on the street and a mob will instantly form and go after whoever they think this person might be. So like if a guy happened to speak to a child on the street, suddenly like, he's the murderer, let's get him. Or they misheard somebody say something about the murderer and then they say, wait, did he say he's the murderer? And they instantly swarm this guy. They're just so on edge and it's just like a powder keg waiting to explode. So the police have to do something And it's just ruining these criminals' lives. They can't make their business happen.
0: To your point about the scenes, you know, where they show the the tense aspect, I think that's one of the great parts about this film. What Fritz Lang does really, really well is building that tension and kind of showing in multiple ways how everyone is on edge and really gives you the background as to like why these thieves are going after what they're doing. Like that guy who just tries to, the little girl asks him like what time it is and he just tells her the time and that's it and he gets accosted and like almost beat up because you know everyone thinks that he's the murderer and i think like i said the scene earlier with the guys around the table and they're accusing each other of being the murderers and just really sets it that it's not just the police who are worried about this though just every citizen is kind of on alert trying to find out who the killer is which actually brings up kind of like a point where Later in the film, when they eventually, when one of the guys eventually sees this guy with the girl, the store clerk and a couple of the other random citizens don't say anything or think that it's suspicious that this guy is with this girl. Mm-hmm. Just kind of a, one thing that was kind of like, eh, like I feel like, you know, based on previous scenes, that like I'm surprised he has the ability to even talk to a girl without getting, you know, assaulted. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, it is what leads the one of the thieves to notice it and kind of call it out after, of course, the blind guy is hearing the whistling. I think that's kind of what's, you know, what's really cool about this film is that it's not just about visually seeing what's going on, that it's, it's that audio that brings it home.
1: Right. One other scene, I don't really know if you categorize this under directing or cinematography. I'm leaning a little more towards directing. Right when the criminal organization is kind of deciding, like, hey, we need to, we need to catch this guy, they enlist, I guess, the homeless of the city Because the homeless are kind of organized too. Uh So they have their own group. So the criminals kind of hire the homeless because they know they're going to be on every street corner already and nobody's going to be paying attention to them. So they have like a big lineup in one of their underground dens where the homeless people are coming in and they're each getting assigned different sections to cover. So there's a shot. You're outside of this den, I guess, out on some like sub street level. And you're looking through a glass window and you can see this line of people leading up to a desk and the camera comes in, it like tracks in through the window, which is a glass window. And now you're inside the building and then it follows the line of people up to the front desk. Mm -hmm. In a current movie, either the window or that whole wall would have just been CG or a post effect. It's not really there. So the camera could just pass through it easily on the rewatch, they actually called it out on the commentary. If you watch that scene, right when the camera's getting up to the glass, the glass actually slides out of the way. Yeah. And then the camera goes through. So it was a kind of a practical effect, but it's done so quickly. If if you're not really thinking about it, you don't notice it. It's a pretty long shot. And it's just a great shot that I feel like for that time period, that was probably a very interesting technique that somebody else may not have thought of.
0: Definitely. I mean, that's one of the things that Citizen Kane, which was I think forty nineteen forty one is when that came out. Um, that is famous for is its cinematography, and one of the big things is the crane shots that are in Citizen Kane. Specifically, one that's very similar to the one you described, but it's like an overhead shot where it comes in through a roof into a building. Um, that's called out as one of the more famous famous shots, and like kind of you know unique uses of of those shots. So I didn't notice the glass lighting. I'll have to go back out and watch. Uh, I missed that, so I'll have to watch that again. That's kind of cool. I do think the cinematography, though, is, is really good in conjunction with the directing. One of the first shots that I noticed and called out was when, uh, at the beginning of the film, when you're seeing the poster saying what the murderer did, mm-hmm. you see Peter Lurie's kind of silhouette come in when he's talking to, um, is it like Elsie?
1: Elsie uh... Beckman.
0: Elsie Beckman, right, yeah. That kind of, that silhouette kind of like over top of what you know, if we if it was in English, it would be clearly saying like that this was the murder, you know, describing what the murder had been done. So I thought that was kind of a cool, uh, you know, kind of a cool shot. And then, of course, having the him whistling um, the uh, what was the song called
1: in the Hall of the Mountain King?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Hall of the Mountain King. Yeah. Which actually what's interesting is I was I've, of course, heard, you know, had that in my head for a long time, having watched this movie several times and always associated to that. And I think there's a kind of a weird Trent Reznor in the social network. uh, You know, he did the did the soundtrack for that film and he did a version of that like he kind of you you could probably put a clip of it in right here. kind of a weird obviously trent Reznor version of that is that's, that's kind of in the film so uh i remember seeing the social network and being like oh that's the that's the song from m
1: yeah and then um kill bill
0: oh right yeah it's in that too
1: it's not in the hall of the mountain king but it's it's the same you know the killer i think it's daryl hannah's character is always like whistling when she's walking down the halls getting ready
0: oh i thought the song was in kill bill oh, okay maybe not maybe i'm thinking i'm think in kill
1: bill it's like do <laughs>
0: Yeah. So I looked into that. There's definitely an effect that's from opera. So it's not like it's that people are copying this movie. I mean, maybe they were, but it's kind of having that kind of effect where a character uh, sings a song or has a whistles a tune that kind of associates, uh, associated with that character. So you kind of know what's about to happen. So throughout M, as we hear that, we see like a little kid and we kind of hear the whistling. We know that he's there off screen. It's kind of that, that Jaws effect too. Yeah where you hear the music but you don't necessarily see the see the character
1: In Hereditary that just came out last year I think there's a a character who has that sound who she makes that like a <laughs> noise in the back of her throat You just know, like, if you hear that and she's not on screen, like, she's lurking somewhere in the corner. Oh, weird. The cinematography, the cinematographer, I would say, is Fritz Arno Wagner. And the only other, I mean, he did a lot of other movies, but I would say the most famous movie he did cinematography for was Nosferatu. Oh, yeah. So the shot you were talking about with the shadow kind of reminded me of Of that too, because I feel like in Nosferatu, there's a lot of silhouetted shadows. But in the scene you mentioned, it actually goes right from that silhouette on the poster to a shot of Elsie's mother in the kitchen, and she's kind of hunched over in the same shape as that silhouetted shadow. I like that. I like both the shadow and then the cut to the other scene, it kind of like ties it in again. There was also a a long shot. When I mentioned earlier about the police storming that underground hideout, mm-hmm. there's a, a woman who yells like, they're raiding the the hideout. So everybody starts running up the stairs. The, the camera must be at the top of the staircase. And it's like kind of a spiraled staircase. So you're watching all the people run to the camera and a few make it past the camera. But then the whole, it's like a crowd, like 50 or so people, they're all shoving up the staircase and they stop because they must see the police, which are behind the camera. Then everybody turns around and starts running back down the staircase. And then the camera, as they're running, starts following and curving down the staircase to follow the people. So it's a long shot, and they're descending and curving around the staircase. And I imagine at that time, that equipment was probably not so easy to, like, track and curve on shots like that. It's a confined space. I really like that. It was a well-laid-out shot, and then the movement... Mm -hmm. It puts you in that crowd of people and you really feel like the claustrophobic sense of it and the urgency of them like rushing away from the police.
0: Yeah, I think it's done a couple times throughout the film. There's a lot of that like stuff happening off camera or what's clearly behind. You're seeing the point of view of the person that's behind the camera, essentially. I think that's one of the things that some of these older films kind of are better about because you can, you know, today I think there's a lot of, especially when you think about like a film like Armageddon or like a Michael Bay film. There's so many cuts. You know, something I pay attention to a lot when I'm watching a movie, like how how long is the camera really on this performance in a conversation, at, you know, constantly cutting back and forth between the two people mm-hmm. versus, in some of these instances, like, you know, you think about the interrogation scene towards the end with, um, uh, with the guy Franz where the camera's just kind of like mostly on him or it's a wide shot of the whole conversation happening. The dialogue's happening back and forth, but you're just seeing Franz while the uh, inspector is talking. And I feel like today you don't really have that a lot. You have a lot of the cutting back and forth. And with these older films I help, I think it's easier to appreciate some of the cinematography and some of the camera movements and stuff like that because you have those longer shots where it's way more noticeable when you're watching the movie.
1: Yeah, there was a really long shot as well when Beckert is being chased. I think it's when he's being chased. He's taking a stop at a cafe for a cognac. And the camera is kind of positioned outside this little cafe, which is surrounded by like a, I don't know what you would call that.
0: Like lattice?
1: Yes. So it's surrounded by a lattice work. And you can see the entrance to this outdoor cafe in just one seat. So the camera watches Becker walk in, sit down at a table behind this lattice work that has Ivy, but you could kind of see him through it. And as the waiter comes out to take his order, the camera tracks in to a little open section in the lattice work. So now you're watching Becker sit at this table by himself, but you're still kind of outside, and it's still one shot. Uh, the waiter brings the cognac, he drinks the cognac. He's kind of nervous. He starts smoking. He puts down his cigarette, uh, and then finally he like gets up, pays for the the cognac, and the camera tracks out again, and then you watch him come out and walk away. It's all one shot, uh, and it never cuts. And there are two people talking for a little bit, but you're not going back and forth. But just the way that was laid out and planned, you're following the camera, but you're almost like a voyeur, like watching what's going on. You know he's the bad guy at this point, and you're peering in through this latticework. Mm-hmm. It was a really good shot. I, I like that shot. One other really great shot is almost at the very end of the movie. The criminals have caught Becker, and he is brought down into this like underground... I don't know what that even is. It's like under the streets somewhere. And they kind of throw him down the stairs and he turns around and there's just this long pan.
0: Yeah, that was good.
1: And you can see that the whole underground is just full of people silent and they're all just staring at him. And that's all of the criminals, the beggars, like all of those people that were tracking him, not the police, yep. just waiting to put him on trial, this unofficial trial. That part bothered me the first time I watched it. On the second viewing, I appreciated it more. This unofficial trial followed up by a very brief legitimate trial in the court and how the criminals actually find him guilty. But the court system seems more like, well, he's mentally unstable and the grieving mothers are there, but they don't necessarily find him guilty. His future is undeterminate at that point. Right. But- If the criminals had gotten their way, they would have killed him on the spot.
0: I do think that's an interesting part of the film that they have have a trial, but they also another one of the criminals kind of plays his defense attorney and actually tries to articulate like what's going on. Right. And not to mention the fact that they're actually listening to what he's saying. They're not just sitting there waiting for him to get done talking because both his defense attorney kind of calls out his idea. He feels like compulsion to do this. That means he's innocent because... You know he can't necessarily control his actions because he's compelled to do this, and also that he get that the guy kind of the guy with the ha- um like the bowler hat on and the cane uh, who's kind of leading the the proceedings. He himself has like on the run from like three or four um you know uh, right. things of manslaughter. So it's just kind of funny that <laughs> the guy himself's potentially like a murderer, but it you know I, I get it comes down to that idea that he's not like child murderer. I think that's just kind of what's super interesting about it is you have these different – well, you have two criminals who are one who's kind of like the head of this organized thing and you have this other guy who's clearly like insane. That's one thing that's maybe not played up enough that when you think about it, you you think through things that happen in the film, like the letter that he writes to the police. Mm -hmm. So he writes a letter to the police and then he writes a letter to the press, which gets published. But they actually – one of the things that's left out when he's kind of first you know, reading what the letter says is that like, you know, he's like, he's going to do it again. And I thought that was kind of really twisted. That he's like, oh, you know, um, I'm not done yet. And he's going to uh, just kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah well, you'll see all this when it, when it kind of shapes out. I thought that was kind of odd that he writes that letter. But then he at the end of the movie, he's like, oh, I feel compelled to do this. I forget about it. So there was some inconsistencies for me there at that point, but I guess if the guy's supposed to be crazy, then it's kind of all out the window and you can kind of do whatever you want.
1: Well, I don't think it was an inconsistency with the writing, but it is an inconsistency with his character. And I think that's good because I think it's showing that he may not be a reliable narrator here when he's giving his monologue at the end saying, I can't help myself. He kind of could help himself because he's taking the time to sit down and write a letter saying like, police didn't publish my letter. So I'm sending this to the press and, you know, I'm not done yet. He's premeditating it. So it's not just hitting him and he can't control it. Like he gets an urge. He's planning out his next murder.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think that the end of the movie is really good too with, you know, they're just tearing that building apart, trying to find the guy. You know, we were talking earlier about great shots. I think there's some really great shots that kind of come out of there, starting with him seeing the M that's been put onto his jacket, kind of the reflections in the window. Mm-hmm. And throughout the movie, Fritz Lang has, you know, uses reflections. It happens many times when characters are kind of like looking in the windows, uh, specifically the murderer. He's looking in the mirror and he's kind of like doing his thing with his mouth, kind of making a frown. And, right. and then my favorite shot of the film is when he's kind of, that. it's that overhead street shot when he's running up and you just kind of see the criminals who are trying to catch him kind of appear from the different corners and he's kind of running around almost like a you know like a pinball and then he just kind of you know runs off screen i just think that's a really really great shot all done with no sound whatsoever no there's no no real music there really isn't any music in this i don't think there's any music in this film at all maybe at the beginning and the end but there's no score that i can think of that really had an impact
1: in the uh, music section uh, adolf jensen is listed as Sound and Paul Falkenberg is listed as sound editor, and those are really your two sound credits. And uh, interestingly, Paul Falkenberg, who is the sound editor, also did sound for Vampire Vampire V A M P Y R, which is uh came out in 1932, and that's also in the Criterion collection. I own that, hmm. I haven't watched it yet, but maybe we'll do that in the future sometime.
0: Yeah, I think that's it. Not having music is an interesting thing, too, because a film probably if the film was made even maybe like 15 years later would have some sort of orchestral music to it which definitely changes the dynamic i think just as well as fritz lang uses sound in this movie he also uses silence really effectively yeah and i think that's one of the things he's known for in this movie is and i one of the things that i think i, I liked about it was that the silence is used so well that that's what really helps you notice the sound this like the sound effects that are used cuz early in the film you have the little kids kind of doing their little singing the song or whatever playing outside and you have the woman kind of walking up the stairs carrying the laundry basket trying to get into the house and there's Foley effects which are like the footsteps and the the knocking on the door all those things exist but then you have a scene like when they're doing the raid and you have all those police like you know there's Yeah, yeah. it's completely silent. There's no pitter-patter of like people's footsteps, people running and when there's that big whistle that happens, it kind of, like, jolts you when you're watching the movie, and I think that's really done well, and one spot that I really like is when they're uh, searching the building, and the, the cops come. They're signaled by that uh, that alarm, which I think is kind of a funny scene in which, you know, the night watchman, he kind of rings the alarm, and it goes to that, I don't know if it's the police station or the alarm company or whatever, but he, like, hears the code of the alarm, and then he has to go to a card catalog and, like, find which it was, and then it's the right. CAD drawing of the of the building and, like, which which, um, which alarm it was coming from, which is funny then when the criminals, when they know that the alarm went off, they're like, oh, the police will be here in five minutes. Like, it took that guy five minutes <laughs> to figure out where the alarm came from, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Just kind of a funny scene. But getting back to what I was saying with the shot was that Peter Lorre's, you know, the child murder kind of h- hiding in those um, baskets or that behind all that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just on him as he's sitting there nervously, and you hearing them like go room by room by room, and the sound effects, and then kind of that like huge spotlight, the flashlight that comes on him, um, you know, when they catch him. And actually, I I had read that Peter Lorre normally was a comedic actor. This was really one of his first, if not his first, dramatic role, and he ended up getting pegged as a villain for most of his career. And after filming this, he hated Fritz Lang because I guess Fritz Lang kind of abused him. Like the scene you talk about where he gets pushed down the stairs, like he was actually thrown down the stairs. Oh, jeez! And I think got injured from it too. So I know he had said that he would never, I think he was offered another role in a Fritz Lang film and he refused to do it. He didn't want to work with him ever again because he felt he was kind of abused throughout the shooting of the film.
1: Well, that's not great. <laughs> but speaking of Fritz Lang, the scene where that hand comes out and they draw the chalk on the hand, the M? Yes. That's Fritz Lang's hand. Oh, really? That's like his cameo in the movie.
0: Well, his other cameo too is he's the one who's whistling. Oh. Because uh, Peter Lorre couldn't whistle.
1: That's interesting.
0: So he's the one who's the recording of the whistling. And you can actually tell on a couple scenes where he's whistling and you can see that it's not, like the, the sync of the audio isn't really that great. Hmm. One of the other things that I was thinking of uh, when we talked about like the acting, a little bit of the overacting is the the interrogation scene with the um, Inspector Loman and and Franz when he tells him he's like oh we're looking for the child murder and he kind of like has that stupefied look and he goes to the bathroom and he's like yeah yeah he rubs his eyes and uh, he goes to the bathroom and he comes out like he just like puts his whole head under the faucet and comes out with his like nice slick back hairdo and now he's all buddy buddy with him trying to figure everything out so yeah that was 100 percent not meant to be funny whatsoever but you can't not laugh at that scene.
1: That was an interesting scene because I felt like at that point, the tension in the movie is very high. The criminals have just caught the murderer and like dragged him away and you don't know what's happening to him. But the police caught this one guy who was left behind and as soon as he hears that they were looking for the murderer, you know, he runs to the bathroom, like said, cleans up his face, comes back out and then he just slows down Yeah, the police officer and he's taking it so slow interrogating this guy watching the movie I'm like come on come on but it, it's interesting because it's kind of creating tension in a scene that the length of it and the pace of it really adds to that um the tension of what's going to happen
0: yeah well speaking of that tension I think um I definitely saw that in the scene when uh the one criminal is kind of first sees him and and he's interacting with that girl and he has like the orange yeah he reaches into his pocket and he pulls the knife out and it cuts back to the criminal who kind of like jumps up ready to pounce because he think he's gonna but then he's just cutting the orange peel off and it reminded me a lot of the scene in raiders of the lost ark which is famous for um the the gag in which marion is in the tent with belloc and uh the the um i can't remember his name at the moment but the german the german guy the nazi comes in and he has his two henchmen behind him and he pulls at this big black like Metal chain thing, and they all, um, Belloc and Marion kind of like are like, Oh no, what's this? And then he kind of like folds it. You think it's some sort of weapon, but it's just a hanger for his jacket. <laughs> that was done on purpose to be like a gag that happened a lot in movies in the 40s and 50s where you'd have these suspenseful moments. It just reminded me of that scene. I thought that was kind of, uh, really well done.
1: Hmm. Yeah, one other thing that seemed to be a reoccurring motif throughout this movie was just how much everybody was smoking. Oh, yeah mostly cigars. So the first time I watched it, I was just like, what is the deal with like to almost an absurd level in some scenes. There's just so much smoke in the shots. Um, But I was listening to the commentary. They were saying how the, the smoke is kind of used to tie some scenes together, especially when you're cutting back between the police and the criminals. It's also a visual representation of the nervousness that all these characters are going through. And to your earlier point about this being, Still in that transition mode from silent to talkies, maybe that's an aspect that's still hung around to visually show that nervousness without having to have the characters stuttering or you know having like a little quiver in their voice. It's just that like frantic, you know, are, are we gonna catch this guy? What's going on?
0: Yeah, because that's going back to that Inspector Loman Franz scene when he's there's that one shot of him and he has his like weird little pipe. And he's just constantly puffing on it while Franz is talking to him. It's like, you know, definitely a compulsive. And he definitely, I think, does stop doing it one once he tells them that they're looking for the child murder. So that definitely makes sense. It kind of ties it together. The other thing was interesting was going back to the beginning of the film with those guys sitting around the table. They're actually using like beer steins with like the lids on them. Which I thought was funny. I don't think I've ever seen a movie where that wasn't done, like, ironically, <laughs> or was, like, you know, some yeah. sort of Oktoberfest or over-exaggerated thing. But to actually see people using them in the, in the actual element was uh, was kind of funny.
1: I've never seen somebody with... I've seen cigarette holders. Usually, you'll see, like, a, a woman in, like, an, an older movie. She has, like, a very long... Right, like one. Cruella DeVille famously. Right. From, but this, this was the first time I think I've ever seen him in a movie where a guy had a cigar holder that he was smoking. Uh, yeah,
0: that was weird. I saw that and it took me, I had to rewind it. Cause I was like, what is that? That he's smoking?"
1: <laughs> yeah. And I think somebody even had one that was almost like a, almost looked like a pipe, but it was holding a cigar.
0: Yeah. That was weird. I, uh, I don't know, just
1: the time period, I guess.
0: Yeah. So it, it's definitely a film that I've always liked for years. It's kind of you know, every now and then you have conversations with people and they're always like, oh, what's your favorite movie? And and I'm like, oh, M. <laughs> and no one's ever seen it. <laughs> and it is kind of always funny to have just a weird random film on your like top five, fil- you know, favorite movies list. But I hadn't watched it in a few years. So I was like, oh, am I going to really like did I really like this movie this much? Because it's easily been five or six years since I watched it. And then I watched it. And I'm like, no, 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 I definitely I sat there the whole thing. And, and it's definitely for me a rewatchable film this film was made in 1931 and like with the simplicity of what it was done, like everything was practical. The effort that would have gone into doing this, even with the sound, like potentially having to record a lot of the sound later, sync it up, do all of that. Yeah. I think definitely helps me appreciate the film a lot more.
1: Yeah. I would probably watch this again, especially for some of those later scenes, like Peter Lorre's monologue. I'd love to read through that again. And I think on the Blu-ray there is an English version. I usually prefer to the subtitles, but at least on Criterion site, they call out that there's a long lost English language version from a, a nitrate print.
0: Yeah, that's like a different cut of the film, though. So it's not like an audio track that plays over it. Oh. It's a, it's just a different cut of the film because just the au- the audio commentary and the German, the original German soundtrack are the only two that are on the like regular cut of the movie. But that's what I was saying before where it was dubbed multiple times. Um but the print uh, that's in that is totally different. It's not the same, same quality. Because there was another thing, too. Um, you said that when you were going through the specs, the aspect ratio was a 1.33 to
1: 1.
0: 1.19. Oh, they did. Okay, so it was put back. Because that was one of the other things was that that was the original aspect ratio that it was shot in. Oh. Because back then when they were doing audio on film, there was basically an optical audio track that was put right on the camera negative next to the actual image hmm. and then the projector would read that and that's how it would project the sound so when this film was done it basically made the movie more square because they had to make space for the uh for the soundtrack so that's why it was much more of it was that what you said it was 1.19 to 1
1: yeah that's really square
0: right so then there was some inconsistencies with with aspect ratio. so then the academy Motion picture arts and sciences standardized 1.33 to one as a standard aspect ratio for a long time. So a lot of prints of this film, up until I believe this Criterion version, were all shown at 1.33 to one hmm. because the image was enlarged and the tops and the bottom of the image were cropped off. Oh, oh. So it wasn't the original print. So the Criterion version is the you know original cut of this film that you can find. There's other versions you can get out there because I I believe the film's in the public domain. It, the copyright was never renewed. So there's tons of bootleg copies of it and other other versions that are out there.
1: Yeah, if you look on YouTube, there's many different channels that have the full movie up there. But I, I peeked at some of those and they the the image quality is not great. There was one where I, I saw like a visible line up towards the top. And I think what you're saying now about how it was cut probably accounts for what was going on in that image
0: yeah what I had read there was a lot of there were copies of copies of copies and then that's kind of what was being put out on DVD or VHS I think even the very first video release of the film in the 60s was a copy of a copy of a copy that was put on and and released on like home video but yeah I mean overall great film I think it's one of the most significant films that we've talked about so far in terms of film history Criterion Collection doesn't, of course, have all of the movies that have you know you consider the best movies or the biggest impacts that have you know they've had in, in film history, but right. I think this is definitely one of up there, definitely on the list of top films uh, when it comes to, uh, to to film history. That's it for this episode of Criterion on the Couch. You can find the show notes for this episode at criteriononthecouch.com slash m dash nineteen thirty one. If you like this episode please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps our podcast be found by uh, other fans out there. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook. On Twitter, we're at Criterion Couch. And on Instagram, we're at Criterion on the Couch. I'm Adam Yurick with...
1: Jim Massessa. Thanks for listening.
0: See you next time.